Welcome back to another episode of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson and with Dante Alighieri as he takes us to the next area of the Inferno in Canto 28, the ditch of the Sowers of Discord. Let me just say that this is a very gruesome, bloody canto. Be warned, and avoid it if you think it will disturb you too much. On the other hand, what is the point of this journey except for us to be so disturbed that we make some changes in our life? Well, the last canto ended as Dante and Virgil reached the top of the arched bridge over the next ninth ditch in the circle of fraud. They looked down, Dante tells us, to see souls who are being paid back for their sin of cutting asunder. That was enigmatic, and we come to Canto 28 wondering what it is that we're about to witness. But, but Dante doesn't satisfy our curiosity at the start of the canto. He gives us another aside, speaking to us as the poet struggling to get into words what he has experienced. It's impossible, he says, to describe the blood and wounds he saw, even if you could describe the horrors of, uh, and here he points to four notoriously bloody battles, even if you could describe all the bloodshed there, it would not amount to what he now sees in this ninth ditch. This disclaimer takes up the first 21 lines of the canto, and we still are not sure what we're going to see. And then we get the first description. A man whose torso is split down the middle of the chest, from the chin right down, as Dante puts it, right down to where he farts, and all his guts are hanging down between his legs. Dante and Virgil don't even have to ask him to speak to them. The man speaks up as soon as he sees them. First, he rips open his chest even further and identifies himself as Muhammad, whom Europeans in Dante's time regarded as a Christian who had split from the church in setting up his own religion. And up ahead of him is Ali, his son-in-law, who in the next generation was responsible for splitting Islam into the Sunni and Shiite divisions. Then he identifies all the people here as those who sowed discord and division among society. Muhammad's next effort is to explain the way things work down here. All these souls get cut up in different ways and then have to drag their bleeding bodies around the long, long circular path. As they travel, their wounds begin to heal, but finally they come to a spot where a butcher demon sits, who then inflicts the slashes and dismemberments all over again, and around they go once more, over and over. Finally, he addresses Dante directly, supposing him to be a soul damned to some deeper part of hell, stopping off for a moment to delay his final torment. No, Virgil interposes, he's not dead, and he's not headed for damnation. He's here to gain knowledge. I'm dead, Virgil adds, but I'm not going to deeper damnation. My job is to guide him down here. While this conversation has been going on, other souls around there have noticed it, and, and they all gather around to stare up at Dante, a live person walking through the land of the dead. Muhammad is about to depart, but with one foot raised, ready to step on, he stops to add one more thing to Dante. He suggests that when Dante returns to the upper world, he should inform Fra Dolcino that he'd better stock up on food, or else he and his people, hiding out in the hills, 
will more quickly find their cause lost. Dolcino is going to end up here anyway, but he may want to delay his death and torment a little longer. And having spoken those words, he finishes what he meant to do, puts down that raised foot and walks off, or lumbers off, given that awful mess he has drooping down between his legs. Then someone else comes up and joins the group gaping at Dante. This one has his throat pierced and his nose cut off and one of his ears sliced away. He opens that slit in his throat to speak, identifying Dante as someone he'd seen back in Italy. Remember me when you get back there, he says, identifying himself as Piera da Medicina. And then he has a message of warning for two men who will soon be betrayed and treacherously killed. Next he shows Dante the soul of Curio, the ancient Roman who persuaded Julius Caesar to cross the Rubicon, an act that precipitated the Roman Civil War. Curio, so bold in speech in his lifetime, now cannot speak since his tongue has been cut out. And here comes someone else with his hands cut off, raising his stumps in the air, up towards Dante and Virgil standing above the ditch, in the in the act of doing this, in the act of doing this, spilling blood all over his face. This is Mosca, the one who might be considered responsible for fomenting the ruinous antagonism between the two big factions in Tuscany in the generations before Dante, the Guelphs, and the Ghibellines. You know who I am, he calls out, the one who encouraged that evil deed. Yes, Dante replies, and may all your family die away. This adds yet more grief to Mosca, who runs off like a madman. And then the final encounter. Dante is sticking around a little longer to see all these people, and would refrain from telling us what he sees next without any backup evidence to support it, but his conscience reassures him that it is indeed right to describe this. Well, what he now sees is a body walking along without a head. No, wait, it has a head, but it's carrying the head by the hair, swinging it along like a lantern. When he gets up to the bridge where Dante and Virgil are standing, he raises his arm, holding his head, so his mouth can be nearer them when he speaks. Look how terrible this torment is for me. When you get back to the world, tell them about me. I'm Bertrand de Bourne and I persuaded young Henry of England to battle against his father Henry II. Because I split up these two, who should never have been turned against each other, here am I now, split in two like this, a fitting punishment. And with that, the canto ends. The canto feels a bit chaotic, with several small incidents piled on each other, First there's the prelude, taking us on a quick tour of several infamous battlefields, and then we move right into the encounter with Muhammad, who tells us nothing about himself, but just shows off his hideous wound, points out his son-in-law up ahead, whose wound is the counterpart to Muhammad's, he split right down his head, and then he describes the nature of their punishments. The incident shifts once he discovers that Dante is not dead, so he adds a message for Fra Dolcino. Then a succession of lacerated figures, the attention directed more to their various wounds than to what they did to get there. And finally there's Bertrand de Bourne and his confession. And like Mohammed, Bertrand's speech is prefaced by a little disclaimer by Dante. 
confessing how difficult it is to describe what he sees. At first it seems there's not a lot to say about this canto. It comes across as not much more than a catalogue of bloodiness we want to take our eyes away from. But there are one or two little points that we may want to look at. Why, for instance, does Mohammed rip himself open further when he sees Dante? Why is he so forthcoming in telling about the pain they're suffering, their healing, and then their being cut up again at every turn of the circle? Well, here's a thought. Mohammed, like Guido da Montefeltro, is mistaken about Dante. He supposes that Dante is just another damned soul, now on his way down to a deeper level with worse torments. Is he then trying to describe in such horrific detail the horrors here in order to, in order to scare Dante? If these pains seem bad, where you're going to be spending your eternity will be even worse completely removed from any kind of sympathy or feeling he has anything in common with this fellow damned soul, he instead sees Dante as someone he can antagonize and create another little diversive hostility with. And what about that curious circular behavior with the wounds gradually healing and then being cut open afresh at every turn around the circle? Well, that's what the sowers of discord do best. Whenever a schism might be in danger of being healed, in they come with one more little nudge, one more outrageous or provocative statement, and there's the division reopened, as fierce as ever. Just watch politicians doing this all the time. When Virgil tells Muhammad that Dante is down here in hell in order to gain knowledge, do, do we think back to Ulysses, who went on his mad flight also in order to pursue further knowledge? Is Dante like Ulysses? No, his is a guiltless quest for knowledge because it has some greater end, as, as we've discussed before. And there's another point here, I think. Virgil adds that his task is to guide Dante, developing a cooperative, mutual relationship between the two of them, as we've been observing. He's not trying to taunt or scare him, as Muhammad apparently is. Perhaps Muhammad was also trying to stir up some discord between Virgil and Dante, stirring up Dante's resentment of Virgil, who he supposes is Dante's demonic guide. That's the way these sowers of discord operate. The nudge here, the insinuation there, and before you know it, there's a wide rift between them. As they talk, there's a crowd gathered to gawp at Dante. I don't think such a thing has quite happened like this before on the journey. And it certainly doesn't happen again in the Inferno. But it does happen when they get to the mountain of Purgatory. And so, like the vision of the mountain at the end of Canto 26, here again we get a foretaste of the next canticle to come. Now, what's the point of Muhammad's warning to Fra Dolcino? Some people observe the connection between Muhammad's attitudes towards marriage and the practices of Fra Dolcino's sect with their free love. But also look at it this way. Muhammad, as I've proposed, may be trying to frighten Dante with the prospect of worse torments below. But once he realizes that Dante is not going to be damned below, he turns his attention elsewhere. If he can't frighten Dante, let him try to frighten Dolcino. Tell him to stock up and maybe he'll be able to delay his death a little bit longer, but remind him that sooner or later he's going to find himself sliced up 
here. Or maybe Muhammad tells this to Dante in order to stir up Dante's animosity towards Fra Dolcino and his group of apostolic brethren, splitting that group even further away from the rest of society. This is the way they sow discord, underhandedly. Well, and lastly, we have to consider Bertrand de Born, who connects us to one of the few English references in the Divine Comedy. But it's not quite clear exactly how Bertrand influenced Prince Henry to rebel against his father, though Bertrand did write a poem lamenting the prince's premature death from fever, and he was once imprisoned by Henry II. There's another aspect to consider, too. In an earlier work, Dante had praised Bertrand as the chief of martial poets, that is, poets who write about war. Maybe there's a sense in which his poetry about warfare was so energetic that it in itself spurred others to go out and pick fights, causing strife where perhaps there had been none. If this is a relevant detail, then one thing Dante may be suggesting is the danger that literature can pose. If literature is directed in the wrong way, especially if it's good literature, it may itself become a sower of discord. A writer needs to do as Dante tells us he did, and check his conscience to be sure that it is all right to say what he has in mind to say. Bertrand ends by pointing out his torment as a contrapasso, the retribution for his sins. We've been looking at these contrapassi as poetic images of the states of our soul when we are engaged in egocentric thoughts or activities. Now, it's quite clear that people who worked to split up social bonds on earth should here exemplify that splitting up on their own form. But what inner state is being split up? Well, here's a suggestion. When you start fomenting factions, you're actually doing the same thing within yourself, splitting yourself up. Let's look again at Mosca's remark. Capo a cosa fatta. When something's done, then it's finished. A group of men were discussing back in 1215 how to get back at someone who had, they conceived, insulted their honor. Should they ambush him and beat him harshly, or maybe just kill him outright? Mosca spoke up here with these words. Capo a cosa fatta. What he meant was, if we kill him, then there's an end of him. We've been talking in the previous cantos about confusing the means and the ends, but here we see not a confusion between means and ends, but a complete severance. Just do the deed and forget the consequences. In fact, this one action led to generations of back-and-forth fighting throughout Tuscany. There's the inner split, means cut off from ends. There's no inner integrity. The important consideration is split off from the rest. Your understanding has been lacerated, as is shown externally here in the symbolic image of lacerated bodies. Had enough of all this bloody business? Yes, we're finished with the canto. Let's move on to the next canto, which is less bloody, but, well, well, you'll see. Meet you there.